Okay, Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. So, so far we have seen a wicked king, we've seen a new queen, and now we're going to see an exalted villain. Alright, so we left off, Mordecai just saved the king from being assassinated. So if you've never read the story before, you would think that Esther chapter 3 begins, verse 1, how? And then the king greatly honored Mordecai, and he gave him many riches and set him upon thrones and gave him a royal robe and chains and whatever, right? Well, that's not what happens. Um, somebody else is going to get exalted. Somebody very much unlike Mordecai. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman. Now, if we were in certain uh, synagogues and I, we read that, does anybody know what would happen right there when we said his name? There'd be hissing. You'd either hiss or boo or throw something. Let's not do the third, okay? You probably wouldn't throw anything, but you would, there's often, they would hiss, all right? So let's try this again. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman. That's exactly right. The Agagite. <laughs> and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for he, had, <laughs> for he had so commanded concerning him. Now, you start reading this and you're like, what happened? I mean, you, you should read... I thought Mordecai is the one who should be greatly honored and exalted, but somebody else gets it. And this is not just anybody. This is a wicked man. Haman. Now, Haman, what do, you, what do we learn about him there in verse 1? He's a what? Agagite. Okay. Now, anybody know... Ag, the Ag, Agagites. Who are they? Where are they? Who are they the descendants of? Take off the ites. Agag. Who's, who's Agag? Anybody remember who Agag is? He's the king of the Amalekites. You're like, oh, of course he's the king of the Amalekites. Everybody remembers that. All right? Now, this is, this is interesting. Because Mordecai is a descendant of who? Saul. Saul was supposed to do what to King Agag? He was supposed to slay him. But now, you're going to have Agag who's going to try to slay Saul. Things are, there's a bit of irony here. So if you were familiar with the Old Testament, you'd be like, uh-oh, this ain't, this ain't good. Of all the people that you don't want to have an authority over you, it's this guy. Yeah, <laughs> Nothing is done for righteous Mordecai, and everything here is done for this unrighteous Haman who's about to show his, his true colors. And injustice has occurred. And I just think it's important to notice here, injustices occur. Now, we live in a world where everybody knows that. Some of us feel that more than others. But when you're reading through the story, it's, it's just what happens. In a fallen world, the righteous are often overlooked and the unrighteous are often exalted. There's actually a psalm written about this where David just about quit, about cashed in the chips, said, I'm done, 
I'm, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. Anybody remember what psalm this is? 73. Psalm 73. Where he says, I looked at the arrogant and I envied him. Because he's watching the arrogant, wicked people get exalted around him and it's like nothing's happening. I mean, Tom Brady is, just has everything, okay? He's got, he got a model wife. I got a model wife, but he got a model wife. He got this big car. Poor Tom's having a hard time selling his $42 million mansion. Poor Tom, right? He's got Super Bowl rings. He's got everything. It'd be easy to look and be like, ah, right? And to envy people who are, who are godless, right? But what happens in Psalm 73? What, does, what happens to David? What does he see? He sees their end, that their foot is slipping, and they are going to be judged he sees what happens in the end. This is one of the ways that the story of Esther is to serve our souls. Is you're going to watch this guy, Haman, who is a wicked dude, get the upper hand. He's an oppressor. He's an abuser. He is a wicked dude. And you're going to be like, I know people like that. And you'll be like, hold on. Don't lose heart because they don't last forever. There's a God who's working in the midst of all of the mess in a way that you can't see, but he's there. So hang on. Verse 2. But Mordecai did not bow, bow, bow down or pay homage. Verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. So the king says, Haman's my new man. When you see him, you pay him homage. You bow down to him. Mordecai says, homie, don't play that. We are not doing that. We are not, we are not having it. We are, I'm not bowing down to him. And it says here, the reason he won't bow down is why? Because he's a Jew. Now, notice here, they keep coming after him and he keeps refusing. Now, why wouldn't he bow down? Think about this. Because it was not wrong for a Jewish person to show honor to a ruler by bowing down to them. It's, it's just customary. It's a culture. It's what you do. You show, you show honor. But think again about how are Persian rulers, especially those as high as this one would have been, second, second man, vice president, if you will, how have he been viewed? Yeah, very much like the, the, the king. There would have been potentially here some sort of divinity um, that they would have, he would have claimed, right? So for Mordecai as a Jew, that's a line you don't cross. You're a king, I'll bow down. You're a god, I ain't bowing to you. Because there's one god. All right? Now, again, this is reading into the text a little bit, but this is knowing that he's a Jew. And he knows he's a Jew. And he says the reason he won't do it is because he's a Jew. So I feel comfortable thinking that he, he knows that there's something this guy is thinking about himself that he does not want to affirm. It's not just that he's a wicked man. Right? He's been dealing, he just saved this other king from getting assassinated. It's, it's, I think there's something more to it there. Now, notice, 
What was, oh, one other thing to notice. Up till now, talk to me about how Mordecai has been um, yeah, repping his heritage. What, how's it been? He's hit it. He's kept it quiet. Nobody's going to know. Brothers and sisters, I think it's interesting to notice here. You can keep quiet for so long, but God is going to put you in situations where eventually you've got to speak up. God will, will allow His people to remain silent only so long where you are going to eventually have to come out and say, listen, I'm with King Jesus. That's the issue, right? Now, I think it's helpful to just be up front. But some of us, and for lots of different reasons, there's reasons we're tempted to be quiet and to hold it in. And listen, this king is crazy trained, okay? So it makes sense you're afraid. But here, finally, God has put him in a place where the heat has been turned up, and he says, I'm a Jew. Now, what was Haman's response to the fact that Mordecai won't bow down? Rage. Fury, absolute anger here. Notice here that prideful people become angry when others don't see their glory. They just, they just can't handle it. Everybody needs to know how amazing I am, how magnificent I am, how wise I am, how powerful I am. You've got to see it. And if you don't see it, I'll kill you. Verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So listen, we, we're going to get rid of, of Mordecai, but it ain't going to be enough. Let's get rid of his whole family, all of his people, all these Jewish people. All of the Jews will pay. So he's not only going to exterminate here Mordecai, but all of his relatives. Nobody. He wants nobody on the planet. If you being Jewish is going to keep you from bowing down, I don't want any more like you on the planet again. Yo. I have a question. Is it Esther his cousin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Esther is his cousin. But are they aware of that? King don't know yet. Yep. So king, king don't know yet. So hang on to that, because pretty soon that box going to pop. All right? So it, it, they're going to find out, and that's going to be a thing. But hang on. So good observation, right? So now this guy, Haman, is worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh's a bad dude. But Pharaoh, what did he try to do? He's just killing baby boys. Right? Now eventually he wants to kill Moses, and, you know, but, but, he, but he, wants to keep, he wants to keep him alive. Because they're useful. This guy, Haman, is who? Yeah, he's Hitler. He's Hitler. He wants, to, he wants to round up the Jews, and we're going to exterminate them, every one of them. By the way, just theologically, this is one of the things that you notice that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, there's a prophecy. And the prophecy was that the seed... Oh, there's two seeds. There's the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent. And the serpent is always going to be going after the seed of the woman, the descendants. This, and you see it in the book of Revelation where S Satan comes after 
Christ, who is the, the descendant of the Jew in whom all of the promises are held. Like Satan hates the covenant people of God. Hates them. We've seen it with Pharaoh. We're seeing it here. We've seen it throughout history. Well, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, which is April, May, and this is, again, if you're keeping score, 474 B.C. This is the 12th year of King Xerxes. So Queen Esther has been queen for about four years now. This is, this is where we are. All right. They cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, which is February, March time. So Haman's decided, let's, we're going to kill the Jews. Now what he needs to do is to figure out when are we going to do it. And to figure out when they're going to do it, he's got to ask the who. He's got to ask the gods, right? And the way he's going to ask the gods is by casting lots. By casting, the Babylonian word is pur, which means lots, right? Now, this is interesting here because just tuck away again. God, at the end of the book, God is going to deliver them in such a way that they're going to name a feast after what this guy's doing. So that every year they're going to remember, oh, lots, throw them. You know, like they're going to celebrate in light of what God's going to do in delivering them. But right here, they don't know any of that. They, all, they don't know any of that. So Haman starts casting lots. Can we kill them tomorrow? No. All right. Can we kill them the next day? No. Hmm. The day after that? The day after that, the day after that. And you read there, it goes on for a long time to where the lot falls 11 months later. This guy was rolling straight ones up for just, I mean, just the whole time. He just couldn't get it to land. And, and sure enough, 11 months later. Now, what does Haman think is happening in all of this? The gods are speaking. <laughs> yeah, they are. But it ain't a they, it's a he and it's a one. Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. The Lord is sovereign over every throw of the dice. So Haman thinks his gods are guiding, but the reality is that the true God in his silent sovereign hand is actually guiding the whole thing to move, to move this date far enough back so that the tension will build and the stress levels will build and everybody's going to freak out just long enough so that at the end when he d delivers them, everybody's going to worship. God does that sometimes, by the way. God is arranging a plan that will glorify His faithfulness in the midst of His unfaithful, fickle people. This is what He's doing. So God's going to stretch this scenario out because He's going to give time for situations and circumstances to, to be masterfully arranged. Again, later on when you read this book and you see God's name not mentioned in it, you're going to have a hard time believing it because His hand is all over this thing. All right? Um, which, by the way, again, just remember that God is silent, but He is sovereign also. He's going to be sovereign over stones. He's going to be sovereign over kings. He's going to be sovereign over queens. He's going to be sovereign over enemies. He's going to be sovereign over civilizations. He rules the world. 
even if the Jews don't recognize it, he rules the world. And it's for their good because he's made promises to his people. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every uh, other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it's not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, and they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Verse 11, And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. So Haman brings this slanderous charge about the Jews to the king, right? Um, Going to bring this charge uh, uh, particularly against, against Mordecai and all of his people. And what, is, what does he say? What's the charge? They have what? Yeah, they got laws that do what? They contradict your laws, O king. Right? So, king, it's in your best interest to do what? Exterminate them. Exterminate them. And, because I care about you so much, O king, I'm going to bankroll the whole joint. Do you see what he says there? I mean, he says he's going to give 10,000 talents of silver. Let me do that. Now, I, you know what? I went on Google today, and I said, how much is that? So I start, I start figuring it out. That's 750,000 uh, pounds. And if you put that in the silver, what silver's worth today, it's worth $190 million. That's a lot of money. So he's independently wealthy. And he's going to bankroll. He said, that's when you know you're committed to killing somebody. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm reaching up on a quarter billion dollars I want to throw at getting rid of these people. This guy, I mean, think about the vanity of this man's heart to be so driven by attention and the desire for fame and affirmation and applause that he is willing to take all of his money and to invest it in this cause. 3.12. Then the king's scribes were summoned. An edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and governors. Uh, satraps and governors all over the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, and to plunder their goods. Verse 14, And all the peoples be ready for that day. Verse 15, The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So again, Haman is independently wealthy, and he is so badly wants the power and the glory and the honor here that he's willing to personally fund this holocaust of the Jews. And the king agrees to it, and he sends out messengers 
um, that, that as they go out and, and take this decree, it basically is, is, is it's a, a divine decree that's going out. The God says this is, is the way it would come across. Execute the Jews. Now, you notice here how, how does the, uh, the city respond there at the end of verse 15? What in the world is happening? You've got these people who've lived among us for a long time, and now all of a sudden, there's this word that goes out that in 11 months from now, we, by order of the King God, are supposed to slay all of our neighbors. The city is filled with confusion. They're bewildered. They're perplexed here. They're unsure of what is happening. And meanwhile, meanwhile, back in the king's lair, these two jokers popping a, you know, popping a bottle. They're going to fill it up. They're going to toast. And they're going to sit back and, and just be happy as clams. Right? They're just sitting back, celebrating, toasting their glory. Now, if this is a movie, you see the city in confusion, then it fades away, and there they are just <laughs> toasting each other, sipping on, on their wine, and then it fades out to commercial. Right? And what you're left with thinking is evil seems to have the upper hand. E evil is winning. This is terrifying. There's no way out of this. All of the power is in the hands of the evil people. The vulnerable, weak people of God, Mordecai is in trouble. Esther, who knows what's going to happen with her. Oh, what's the king going to do? All of that's going on. But it looks bad. Now, can you think of another scene where there's a king who's toasting to his own glory and then the ultimate buzzkill happens? Anybody remember what story I'm referring to? Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar. He's having a party. And he's there, and he's there, they're, they're tipping it up. He's kind of drunk, and like, woo, woo, I'm amazing, everybody, you are amazing. And that's what's happening. And then the ultimate buzzkill is some invisible hand starts writing, you're going to die on the wall. That's <laughs> just basically what happens. And uh, he starts shaking, and everybody starts wetting their pants, and the party is over. And that very night, he's destroyed by this kingdom. That very night. Listen, y'all, that's how fast God can turn the tables. In an instant. But when you're in the midst of it, it's, it doesn't feel that way. You feel like there's no hope. You feel like you want to quit. You feel like, I don't know if I can do another day. This is why you read the Bible. This is why we study books like this. It's because you've got to know that God rules the universe. Because for us, we can, we can be like, I can't take it. What's going to happen? Like, and you can read to the end, and you can read all the way to the end and see what happens, right? But, but Mordecai and Esther, they're living this thing. There's no fast forward button for them. There's no turn the page for them. This is the advantage that we have why there's such a merciful God who would preserve the scriptures for us to read and to study that our hearts may be comforted because we know that, you know what? They're exactly like us. Maybe thousands of years ago, but they're exactly like us. Same stuff. All right. 
So we had a wicked king. We have a new queen. Then we have the exalted villain. And now, an unsuspecting hero. Chapter 4. As we come to chapter 4, the, ro- the rays of hope are growing dim for the Jewish people. Darkness is taking over. But the silent hand of the sovereign God is working. So don't lose heart. Verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So in every province, wherever the king's decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So, terror and mourning and sorrow has swept the Jewish community. Tearing your robes is a sign of grief. You feel torn on the inside, so you tear your clothes on the outside. You wail because what else are you going to do? You just cry out. You put ash or dirt on your head because it's a symbol of uh, as, as you, when you die, you, from dust you are to dust you return, you're, gonna, you're taking this death upon yourself. It's this picture of mourning. This is what's happening here. The king has issued orders for a holocaust and there is public mourning going on here. Now, you're not allowed here to go into the king's gate. So he goes right outside the king's gate. Because you're not allowed to show sorrow or sadness in the king's presence. Um, Can anybody think of another book of the Bible where this is mentioned? Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah, he, he starts freaking out because he goes into the presence of the king and he starts crying. He loses. He's, he's upset. And the king's like, what's wrong? Because he's like, never sees somebody doing this. He's like, sorry, king. It's my people. Right? Well, here, um, this, this Mordecai stops short of going in because <laughs> this king, Xerxes, all he wants around him is happiness. That's why the kings used to have jesters. Like it'd be the comedy club. I always want, I only want comedy club around me all the time. My life's stressful, so I just want people making me laugh. Be happy. You're sad? Die. Like, like this is how he, this is what's going on, okay? Like, this is not, this is the way it was. These are not normal people, okay? Um, so, you can't be sad in the presence of this king. Which, which by the way, just notice how unlike King Jesus this is. King Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You, you need help? Oh, there's a throne of grace that I have is wide open, and I've paved the way there with my blood, and you may come anytime with any need, and there is grace ready and mercy for your time of need. Come. King Jesus is different than the kings of the world, right? But this king, he ain't having no boohooing. Chapter 4, verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. So told her, Mordecai's out there, just he's lost it. He's in the yard. He's, it's not good. Well, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So his mourning cannot be comforted here by just a change of clothes. 
Verse 5, Esther sent a servant to find out why Mordecai was mourning. Verse 7, Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8, Mordecai gave the servant a copy of the decree to show it to pay uh, into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse uh, Nope, I read over that, sorry. Mordecai gave the servant uh, a copy of the decree to show it to Esther, excuse me, and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So what we're about to have here is you're about to have a servant go between Mordecai and Esther. And we're going to see this conversation that's going on back. The servant sees Mordecai and like, oh, that doesn't look good. He looks sad. I'll go tell Esther. Esther says, oh, he must be sad. Let me send him some new clothes. Nope, I'm not having the clothes. Well, what's going on? Well, let me give you a copy of this. Here's what your king's done. Here you go. And then goes back in. The same one I saved, by the way. So he sent him back in. Now she's get this, and this conversation is going to ensue. And notice here, in verse, uh, verse 8, um, what, what is he commanding or calling Esther to do? Commanding her to do what? Plead with the king. Beg favor from the king. Because Esther, you've got, you've got the platform. Right? So the servant takes the news to Esther, verse 10. Then Esther sent her servant back to Mordecai and said, verse 11, all the ser king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. Mordecai says, you've got to go talk to the king about this decree. And Esther says, I can't. Everybody knows the law. You can't go into the king's presence unless you're summoned. So she's got a real dilemma here. She, she has access to the king, but only in a limited sense. Even though she's the queen, she can't just jump up and go into him. And in fact, for whatever reason, she's received orders to stay away for a month. Which, by the way, this, is, this again shows that this is, not a, this is not a sweet guy, right? He sends his wife away for a month. And again, if anyone enters the king's presence without an invitation, they face the possibility of death. We've said this a couple times about Xerxes not being like having it all together. This guy was, he was, he was, he was not a sane man. One time, and the reason I'm, I want you to see, this is the kind of guy that she's thinking about going in and, and, and standing before without being summoned. One time, the king had built a, a bridge uh, during a military, and it had rained, and the water came up and knocked the bridge down. The king was so mad that he ordered that the river be flogged. So he sends his servants out there to beat the river because it was a bad river. Okay? Same guy. Yeah, that's, that's crazier than you thought it was. That's very crazy. You don't do that. That's not normal at all, right? But this is what he does, all right? Because he thinks he's a god. Bad river. Like, you took my bridge. Like, this is, this is him. So that, not only that... But, but another time, there was a rich man who came to the king and requested that his son be exempted from military service. So you know what Xerxes did? He cut his son in half 
and laid him two parts in a field and he had his he had his army march between the parts this is not like a guy that is can be reasoned with this is the kind of king that Esther is being asked to go in uninvited he would he have no problem. He got rid of Vashti easy. He's happy to do that with anybody. 4.13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai wants Esther to feel the weight of this situation. Mordecai says, you've got to see what's happening here, Esther. There's no plan B. I don't know if you caught it here. He, there's three things he wants her to see. The first, you're not safe in the king's palace. Just because you're the queen does not mean you're safe there. Like, it's going to be found out that you're a Jew, and when it comes out that you're not only a Jew, but that you've been lying to him, you're going to die. You're not safe there. If he's exterminating Jews, it's going to come to you soon or later. Another thing. Esther, you've got to know deliverance will come for the Jews. Did you catch that? Not sure how explicit his faith in God here is, but he is some, somewhere back in the reservoir of his mind and his heart. He, he knows that God has made covenant promises to Abraham and to his descendants, and that means something. So he knows somehow God's going to deliver him, even though he doesn't say it that way. The third thing here is that she is going to suffer if she neglects her responsibility. It's interesting here. Um, even though deliverance is going to rise up from another place, you and your father's house will perish. That's interesting. The Jews will be delivered, but you, you will be judged. I take it that there's a warning that God will judge her here because... She is hiding from her responsibility. That's what it seems to be implying here. We can talk about that if you want. But, but what, what is really, really clear is that he wants her to know that she has responsibility here. She's got to feel that. He points out to her the providential placement. Look, look, Esther, you've got to realize God arranged this. He made you beautiful. He allowed you to get exiled. He allowed you to come into the harem. He allowed you to win the king's heart. He allowed you to become queen. He's made you who you are, and he's put you where you are for this moment right now. This was the counsel that she needed to hear. She needed him to to push her. Verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, 
and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther's soul is strengthened by Mordecai's counsel here. And she pleads for her people, the Jewish people, to fast, which again, I think implies praying, looking to God, though it's not mentioned. She's going to do it too. And after three days, she says, I'll go to the king. Though her actions will be against the king's laws, it will be according to God's law. And she knows that she cannot lose her life to a better cause. This is why she says, if I perish, I perish. Now, really important application here. One of the most fundamental, foundational, primary things you've got to remember if you're going to follow Jesus. Obey God and let Him handle the consequences. Obey God and let Him handle the consequences. Listen, you don't need to live, but you do need to be faithful. That is the way of Jesus. Jesus didn't have to save His life. He even told you, if you try and save your life, you're going to lose it. This is the heart behind that. Esther here is willing to do the right thing to stand up for her people, to embrace this moment that we see God has given her. How much she recognizes that, we don't know, but we do know that that's what God's done. He's put her there. And let the chips fall where they may. Verse 17, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered them, which I imagine that was probably three of the slowest, most painful days or at the same time, three of the fastest. Like, just that tension of like, when's this going to come? Well, verse 1 of chapter 5, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the room opposite the entrance of the palace. So again, if this were a movie, she would walk in if, if, if the throne was here, she would walk in right there and the king would see her. And he could, in a moment, say, you have not been summoned. Off with her head. Verse 5. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. This is where if you're watching, everybody goes, okay. But now what? But now what? Now, before we see, we see what, what she says, I think it's, this is a really important observation. If you include verse 8, this is the sixth time that we see the word favor show up. The word, there's two, it's used, there's two words that are used, hesed and hen. They're, they're, the hesed word is almost always used in relation to God's covenantal faithfulness to His people. 
Now, this is really important. <laughs> Though God is silent, his hesed still remains. And how is the hesed coming to his people? Where's it coming through? Through the wicked king. God is sovereign enough that he is able to even use wicked rulers to extend Hesed to his covenant people in the midst of a thoroughly pre precarious position. God is working here even though she doesn't know it. Verse 3. The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. That's good. Verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, ah, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman went to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish that it may be granted to you? Verse 7. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king and it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow. <laughs> Can I have another day, king? Now, we don't know exactly why. Um, we don't know if she's afraid. We don't know if she just needs more time to stall and to figure out what to do. We don't know if maybe she's being shrewd here, and this is a way of showing honor to the king. You've already put him out to do this feast, uh, and now I wouldn't want to burden the king with something else heavy with a request. So if I may, let's, let's do this again tomorrow. There's, who knows whatever kind of cultural things are going on here or in her heart. But what we're going to find out is that that extra day is going to be really helpful. And God is, <laughs> he is sovereignly tying a bow that is about to get shown for everybody to see how he's working in the midst of this mess. And that's where we're going to take a pause. Any questions about this before we then come back in just a couple moments and see what in the world is God going to do for Esther and for Mordecai and the people of God? Any questions? Yo. I would just hope you would help me understand that when Malachi was at the gate pleading to Esther, right? And he tells her, well, if you don't plead, it's going to bring your head and you're going to be, you know, they're, they're going to, it's going to be revealed who you are. And then on the other hand, <laughs> he's saying, well, isn't he asking her to kind of like reveal who she is to the king as well? So it seems like Yep. That's exactly right. I think that's why Esther, so the question is, isn't what Mordecai is asking Esther to do kind of a catch-22? Because she's either got to come clean with who she is, or I mean, like, either way, this is going to be, and that's exactly why she feels like she does, and this is why she's called for fasting and prayer, because they need some divine intervention. Because only God can, only God can split this thing. And that's what he's, how in the world could he do that? Well, we're about to see how he's going to do it in just a second. Within, so he could, what's coming up, he's going to uh, open up a, a whole new book. 
Yep, so she, yeah, she, she, what gets her in there is her physical beauty and her charm. Um, but while she's in there, she has been covering up who she is. And that, that's going to, that's going to come out in an amazing way here in just a second. All right. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come right back. All right. <laughs> 